the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we'll hear a conversation with Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. And we'll also... Um, let you know what's happening with 401ks right about now, or as one uh, writer put it, a 301k, given the economic downturn that we're in. Well, Multnomah County health officials are asking people to wear masks indoors until the new coronavirus case counts and hospitalizations start to fall. This is not a mandate, but we're asking everyone to put their mask back on for a few weeks so they, uh, as they go to school, work, and other indoor events. That's a quote from the health officer, Dr. Jennifer Vines. In a statement, adding that the county strongly recommended that people wear masks in schools. So if you're wondering why this is um, coming up, county officials haven't set a case or hospitalization threshold for when they'd consider mandating masks. So this isn't a mandate. It's a suggestion. A spokesperson for the health department said uh, they have um, haven't set a threshold for lifting the recommendation either. Multnomah County has been averaging about 350 new cases a day, up from less than or fewer than 100 cases in early April. Well, the governor, she ended the statewide mask mandate back in March. You might recall it was a great day. I remember attending Bible study fellowship that morning and seeing my fellow um, Bible studiers for the first time face to face. I didn't recognize them. I'd only seen the upper half of their faces, but it was sweet to see the whole thing and their expressions and their mouths move when they talk. So that was back in March when it was lifted. The current COVID-19 bump, as they're referring to it, is expected to peak in about a month when hospitalizations would max out at around 320 occupied beds. That's according to Oregon Health Science University forecast. That's uh, far below previous highs that approached 1,200 people hospitalized. Uh, by recommending that everyone wear a mask indoors, Multnomah County is stepping ahead of federal recommendations at the current risk level in the in the county set by federal health officials based on case counts and hospitalizations. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that people at risk of severe disease should consider masking only at a high risk level. Does the agency recommend that everyone wear masks indoors? So Multnomah County has sort of jumped ahead of the CDC and other sources uh, recommending and not mandating that masks be worn indoors. Clackamas and Washington counties haven't recommended universal indoor masking. Both are also in the medium risk category. That's where Multnomah County is. They've seen the same or higher case rates over the last weeks as Multnomah County. Washington County would likely recommend universal masking if its risk level climbed too high, according to Wendy Gordon, who's a spokesperson speaking Uh, via email. It's important for everyone to think about their own health, their own risk level, the risk level of those in their households and social circles, and to act accordingly. Clackamas County isn't making a universal mask recommendation either because it's still in the medium risk category, according to a spokesperson, again, in an email. 
Multnomah County officials also suggested people who are at high risk of severe COVID-19 consider avoiding crowded indoor settings for the next few weeks. So Clackamas and Washington counties, although they're experiencing the same numbers that Multnomah County is, is not making the recommendation. Multnomah County, on the other hand, is suggesting, not a mandate, suggesting that masks be worn indoors. Meanwhile, more than 17,000 physicians and medical scientists have signed the Declaration for Restore Scientific Integrity. They're demanding that the state of medical emergency must be lifted, scientific integrity restored, and crimes against humanity addressed. Well, last year, more than 5,200 doctors and scientists met in Rome uh, in September for a three-day global COVID summit to speak truth to power about COVID pandemic research and treatment. Well, the summit presented an opportunity for the medical professionals to compare studies and assess the efficacy of the various treatments for the coronavirus that had been developed in hospitals by doctors in their offices and research labs throughout the world. However, many of these medical professionals have experienced career threats, character assassination, censorship of their research papers, clinical trials and uh, patient observations, their uh, professional history and accomplishments altered or omitted in academic and mainstream media be- uh, because of their providing life-saving treatments for COVID patients. There was only one view that was permitted. Well, yesterday, an international alliance of physicians and medical scientists met in person and virtually to present a press conference uh, for their fourth global COVID summit with more than 24 hours between uh, completion of the taping and release of the statement and video. Speakers included Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Lynn Flynn, Dr. Harvey Reich, Dr. Brian Tyson, Peter McCullough, Michael Yaden, and other doctors. Incidentally, the White House announced it will also host a global uh, global COVID summit uh, today with participants such as Google, Clinton Health Access Initiatives, Open Society Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the MasterCard Foundation. However, the administration stole the name Global COVID Summit from the medical professionals, and now Google has blocked searches for their group. So much for free speech. Well, among the things that they're asking for after these two years of scientific research, millions of patients treated, hundreds of clinical trials performed and scientific data shared. They have demonstrated and documented our success in understanding and combating COVID-19 and considering the risks versus benefits of major policy decisions. Our global COVID summit of 17,000 physicians and medical scientists from all over the world have reached consensus on the following fun- fundamental or foundational principles. One, we declare that the data confirms that COVID-19 experimental genetic therapy injections must end. We declare doctors should not be blocked from providing life-saving medical treatment. We declare the state of national emergency, which facilitates corruption and extends the pandemic, should be immediately terminated. We declare medical privacy should never again be violated and all travel and social restrictions must cease. We declare masks are not and have never been effective protection against an airborne respiratory respiratory virus in the community setting. We declare funding and research must be established for vaccination damage, death and suffering. We declare no opportunity should be denied, including education, career, military service or medical treatment over unwillingness to take an injection. And we declare that First Amendment violations and medical censorship by government, technology and media companies should cease and the Bill of Rights be upheld. 
We declare that Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, Janssen, AstraZeneca, and their enablers withheld and willfully omitted safety and effectiveness information from patients and physicians and should be immediately indicted for fraud. And finally, we declare government and medical agencies must be held accountable. There was a press conference, a rather interesting collection of medical professionals uh, and medical scientists on the subject of COVID. You won't hear their voices. They have been censored. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Tony Reinke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Well, prospective home buyers in Oregon can continue to send love letters to people selling their homes. U.S. District Judge Marco Hernandez uh, on Wednesday permanently blocked the ban on the personal messages some buyers write in an effort to sweeten the uh, offer to purchase a home. Well, the Oregon legislature approved the ban last year. Why? I couldn't tell you. Saying such letters could aid sellers in illegally choosing buyers based on factors such as race, color, religion, sex or sexual orientation, which would violate federal fair housing laws. Conservative public interest law firm, the Pacific Legal uh, Legal Foundation, sued the state to block the law's implementation. Presumably, these love letters would reflect what the uh, would-be buyer um, would think is in their advantage. Well, Hernandez ruled that the ban, which would require a home seller to reject any communication other than customary documents in a real estate transaction, including photographs provided by a buyer, was a violation of the buyer's First Amendment rights. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of Total Real Estate Group, It's a Bend firm with about 20 agents. Uh, A lawyer for the Pacific Legal Foundation said the judge's decision sent a very clear message that states couldn't infringe upon homebuyers and sellers' right to communicate. The state of Oregon clearly recognized that it could not justify its ban on sharing information that helps sellers find the best buyer for their home. Uh, He uh, said in a news release in his March um, preliminary injunction, The judge said Oregon's reasons for the ban had merit, given its long and abhorrent history of racial discrimination and property ownership and housing, which blocked people of color from owning houses for decades. But he said House Bill 2550 was an overreach, banning innocuous messages and infringing on free speech. So if you're looking to purchase a home, you can, well, send that love letter to explain why you think you should be given special consideration. Well, Russia is... uh, uh, withdrawing troops from the Ukrainian region um, that they encircled at the beginning of the war. It's proving their inability to capture key Ukrainian cities. That's the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense statement on Thursday. In an intelligence update, the ministry said Ukrainian forces are continuing to counterattack to the north of Kharkiv, recapturing several towns and villages toward the Russian border. Despite Russia's success in encircling Kharkiv in the initial stages of the conflict, it's reportedly withdrawn units from the region to reorganize and replenish its forces following heavy losses. Kharkiv in Ukraine's northeast is the country's second largest city with an estimated top population of nearly 1.5 million. The withdrawal of Russian forces from the Kharkiv Oblast is a tacit recognition of Russia's inability to capture key Ukrainian cities where they expected limited resistance from the population, it added. The ministry says the withdrawn forces rather will likely deploy to the eastern bank of the Donetsk River, Uh, forming a a blocking force to protect the western flank of Russia's main force concentration and main supply routes for the operations in the vicinity of Izium. 
So the war is not over, but it is once again shifting based on uh, Russia's inability to achieve its directive. District Court Judge Christopher Cooper ruled today that none of the 38 emails exchanged between lawyers Michael Sussman, the Clinton campaign and opposition research firm Fusion GPS and submitted as evidence by special counsel John Durham are admissible in Sussman's impending trial. His trial for making a false statement to the FBI began uh, begins Monday in Washington, D.C. Sussman told the bureau's general counsel that he was not working on behalf of any client when he came forward with alleged uh, evidence of collusion between the Trump organization and the Russian Alpha Bank, according to the text message between the two obtained by Durham and revealing in an earlier filing. But time logs from his uh, law firm also obtained by Durham, who is the investigator, show that he was, in fact, being paid by the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign at the time. Defense had argued that the emails were all protected by attorney-client privilege and attorney work product doctrine. Cooper ruled that only 16 of the messages were protected for those reasons and directed Sussman's attorney to turn over the remaining 22 messages to investigator Durham. However, Cooper said he will not allow Durham to introduce any of those unprotected 22 emails during Sussman's trial due to the alleged untimeliness of Durham's request. Uh, The investigator has been tasked with investigating the origins of the Department of Justice's investigation into ties between Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and Russia in 2019 that proved to be false. The Biden administration canceled all three remaining offshore oil and gas lease sales last Wednesday as gasoline prices hit an all time high. The Department of the Interior that oversees all lease sales on federal lands and waters said a sale spanning 1.09 million acres in the Cook Inlet in Alaska was canceled due to a lack of industry interest, while two in the Gulf of Mexico were canceled due to factors including conflicting court rulings in a statement Thursday to the Daily Caller's News Foundation. With the cancellation, there are no, uh, no more federal offshore oil and gas lease sales scheduled. Unfortunately, this is becoming a pattern. The administration talks about the need for more supply and acts to restrict it. Frank uh, Machioriel, or something very like that, the American Petroleum Institute's senior vice president of policy, economics and regulatory affairs, said in a statement uh, also to the news outlet. As geopolitical volatility and global energy prices continue to rise, we again urge the administration to end the uncertainty and immediately act on a new five-year program for federal offshore leasing. The three sales were scheduled under the current five-year offshore lease plan that expires in late June. Under the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act of 1953, the Interior Department is mandated to issue five-year plans with a list of proposed offshore lease sales. However, the administration has delayed issuing a new plan, and in April, Interior Secretary uh, Halen said there is still a significant amount of work to do before the agency publishes the plan. The administration even suggested that the next offshore oil and gas lease sale wouldn't take place until after October of 2023 in the Interior Department's fiscal year 2023 budget proposal. And the Biden administration is setting the stage to hand ultimate control of America's health care system and U.S. national sovereignty over to the World Health Organization. Well, on May the 22nd through the 28th of this year, the 75th World Health Assembly will convene in the United Nations headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, 
with delegates from 194 nations to vote on the Biden administration's amendments that would hand over national sovereignty and authority to the World Health Organization, which during the COVID pandemic carried the water bucket for the Chinese Communist Party regarding the Wuhan lab. Well, on the 18th of January of this year, officials from the Biden administration quietly sent the World Health Organization extensive amendments without an official statement or a single press conference. Well, these proposed amendments are written to strengthen the organization's ability to unilaterally intervene into the affairs of nations merely suspected of having a health emergency of a possible concern to other nations. If these amendments are approved, the World Health Organization or WHO Uh, will have the power to declare an international health emergency, nullifying the powers of nation states. The U.S. amendments delete a critical existing restriction in the regulations. Who shall consult with with and attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring? End quote. Well, this enables the director general to declare health emergencies at will and can be used to justify ostracism and economic or financial actions against the targeted nation by other nations aligned with the World Health Organization or who wish to harm and control the accused nation. The contents of the proposed amendments were not made public until the 12th of April of this year. The existing uh, World Health Organization regulations provide for an 18-month grace period during which a nation may withdraw its yes vote for amendments. However, the current proposed um, amendments would reduce that opportunity to six months. If the amendments are passed, a majority of the nations could change their individual vote and reverse the approval in the next six months, in the next months anyway. COVID-19, make it the last pandemic. A report published by the United Nations in May of last year claims that the pandemic would have been prevented if the World Health Organization had been given more global authority. The report states in its current form, the WHO does not possess such powers to move on with the treaty, who therefore needs to be empowered financially and politically. The treaty should possess an adaptable incentive regime, sanctions such as public uh, reprimands, economic sanctions, or denial of benefits. Again, resting the sovereignty from the United States with regard to health care. On the 20th, uh, Joe Biden of January sent a letter to uh, the UN's general secretary and member of the Portuguese Socialist Party retracting President Donald Trump's withdrawal from the WHO, Biden also appointed Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, to represent the United States on whose executive committee. So, again, the administration setting the stage to hand ultimate control of America's health care system and the U.S. national sovereignty to the World Health Organization. Should who decide eh, we're not uh, happy with what you're doing and what's happening there? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Second hour, Tony Ranke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Well, Open the Books is a nonprofit government watchdog organization. They're dedicated to investigating and disclosing the many ways in which government spends and wastes our money. And they're asking the question, did Fauci and Collins receive royalty payments from drug companies? Well, it has a new report out that should raise some eyebrows. According to information garnered from the Freedom of Information Act requests, between 2009 and 2014, both Anthony Fauci and former uh, National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins received royalty payments from pharmaceutical companies. 
Now, this may present a conflict of interest since they had a great deal of influence in deciding what research the government funds. From the report, and I'm quoting, last year, the National Institutes of Health, Anthony Fauci's employer, doled out $30 billion in government grants to roughly 56,000 recipients. That largesse of taxpayer money buys a lot of favor and clout within the scientific, research and healthcare industries. However, in our breaking investigation, we found hundreds of millions of dollars in payments also flow the other way. Those are royalty payments from third uh, third party payers, think pharmaceutical companies, back to the NIH and individual NIH scientists. We estimate that between fiscal year 2010 and 2020, more than $350 million in royalties were paid by third parties to the agency and NIH, NIH scientists who are credited with uh, as co-inventors. Because those payments enrich the agency and its scientists, each and every royalty payment could be a potential conflict of interest and needs disclosure, end quote. When bench scientists research leads to monetized benefit in the private sector, I suppose royalties are in order. And certainly government funding should reap benefits for the government when the investment leads to the development of profitable products. But Collins and Fauci, as far as we know, were administrators, not researchers. Yet the uh, OTB, and again, that's the Open the Books um, nonprofit group, it's a government watchdog organization, found that they received royalties from drug companies. Well, since the NIH documents are heavily redacted, you can only see uh, how many payments each scientist received and separately the aggregate dollars per NIH agency. It's a gatekeeping Um, at odds with the spirit and perhaps the letter of the open records law. They found agency leadership and top scientists at NIH receiving royalty payments. Well-known scientists receiving payments during the period included Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and the highest paid federal bureaucrat receiving 23 royalty payments. Uh, Fauci's 2021 taxpayer-funded salary was $456,028. Francis Collins, the NIH director from 2009 to 2021, received 14 payments. Uh, Collins' 2021 taxpayer-funded salary, $203,500. And Clifford Lane, Fauci's deputy at the NIAID, received eight payments. Uh, Lane, uh, Lane's 2021 taxpayer-funded salary, $325,287. Uh, In the examples, although we know the number of payments to each scientist, we still don't know how much money was paid because the dollar figures were deleted. It's been a a struggle to get any useful information out of the agency on its royalty payments. NIH is acting like uh, royalty payments are a state secret. Did Collins and Fauci earn those royalties from work performed before their government service or as bench researchers? Are they partial uh, patient owners or rather patent owners? If so, Um, What did they contribute to the product's development if they were rewarded for acting as administrators and not researchers? Is it akin to a kickback? Unfortunately, the NIH is keeping the matter as opaque as they can, but it does raise some interesting questions. Well, in other news, the House Select Committee on January 6th Capitol has issued subpoenas to House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and four other House Republicans who have declined the panel's request for voluntary cooperation. The group also subpoenaed representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, 
Missouri, uh, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. The round of subpoenas, which the committee announced on Thursday, is the first time the panel has issued subpoenas to sitting members of Congress. There's some question as to whether or not it, they have the authority to do so. And interestingly enough, each of these individuals sit on significant political panels that would benefit their opponents if they were to be removed. Can't make this up after the Roe leak. CNN warns of violence from the far right. Nancy Pelosi, already scheming to undermine House Republicans after they win in November, announced $45,000 minimum salary for staffers on the Hill. Elon Musk reportedly plans to clean house at Twitter by firing a thousand staff on his way to signing a $69 million paying uh, uh, subscribers. No justice for justices. The Department of Justice does nothing as uh, protesters target Supreme Court conservatives over leaked uh, draft despite federal law. And um, the Internet is forever. Case in point, old tweets come back to haunt Biden's new White House press secretary. Pain at the pump, gas prices hit new all-time high as the EU may block Russian oil and Biden's restrictions remain. In our inflation nation, President Biden plans to lay out an effort to tackle soaring costs, drawing contrast between his administration and what he called ultra-mega plans, trying to interject um, Donald Trump into the upcoming elections. Saying, leave the justice alone, the Washington Post editorial board takes a stand against the recent abortion rights protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. MSNPC political analyst Juanita Tolliver says that Republicans are trying to deny women and anyone with a uterus the right to an abortion. Is there a distinction between the two? Claiming a direct link, MSNBC star Nicole Wallace suggested Russia's invasion of Ukraine is directly connected to the Capitol riot on January the 6th. I'm having a hard time seeing the connection, but there you have it. Flat out illegal. Top Senate Republicans slam protesters outside the justice's home, saying lawbreakers must be held accountable. That's what the law says. Well, too little, too late. The White House finally admonishes those um, um, intimidating uh, SCOTUS, at least verbally. Katie Pavlich weighs in, saying after a weekend of raucous pro-abortion activists descending on churches and the homes of Supreme Court justices, the White House is finally, at least verbally, condemning the behavior. Jen Psaki The White House press secretary strongly believes the constitutional right to protest, but that should never include violent threats or vandalism. Judges perform an incredibly important function in our society, and they must be able to do their jobs without concern for their personal safety. And the law, of course, prevents judges from being subject to uh, coercion. The Washington Examiner says Sackey's remarks came days after abortion rights activists gathered in front of homes of Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Chief Justice John Roberts to protest the leaked draft uh, opinion, suggesting the court is prepared to overturn Roe versus Wade. According to current statute, protesting outside the Supreme Court justices' homes is illegal. 18 U.S. Code 1507 states, whoever with the intent of interfering with, obstructing or impeding the administration of justice or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness or court officer in the discharge of his duty, pickets or parades in or near a building housing a court of the United States or in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness or court officer or with such intent uses any sound truck or similar device or resorts to any other demonstration in or near any such building or residence shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year 
or both. Apparently, the law doesn't matter. The U.S. Senate voted to expand the security for Supreme Court families. According to CNN, members of the U.S. Senate passed the bipartisan uh, bill on Monday that would expand security protection to the family members of the court justices following said protests. Protesters are calling to abolish the Supreme Court uh, with the Party for Socialism and Liberation and other far left groups gathered on on a Saturday to voice their opposition to the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, going as far as to call for the Supreme Court to be abolished. Poll says 82 percent of the U.S. voters are worried about gas prices. Only 82 percent. A new national telephone and online survey by Rasmussen Reports and the Heartland Institute finds that 82 percent of likely U.S. voters are concerned about rising energy and gas prices, including 60 percent who are very concerned. Only 14 percent aren't concerned about the rising prices of energy. Sixty percent favor a law that would dramatically increase oil and gas drilling in the United States, including 47 percent who would strongly favor such a law. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we'll talk with the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there is a baby formula shortage. It's leading mothers to panic. Parents are frustrated and stressed while trying to find infant formula for their children as the shelves remain bare at popular retailers, Walmart, Target, grocery store chains, according to shoppers. Many of these retailers have installed um, uh, limits on formula purchases, so even when their brand, uh, brand rather becomes available, moms can't stock up. Most brands are also sold out online, and they're being offered by third-party sellers for exorbitant prices. Uh, This problem has been especially difficult for parents of children with intolerance who rely on certain brands that their babies are able to digest. RNC Research reports that moms are facing a terrifying shortage of baby formula, which has become impossible to find as the supply chain crisis persists. A National Review reports that most reporting on the infant formula shortage points the finger at Abbott Laboratories, which instituted a February recall of powder formulas, including Similac, Ailmentum and L.A. Care, manufactured in its uh, Sturgis, Michigan facility. The recall, which the company emphasizes was voluntary, came after four consumer complaints of um, Chronobacker um, Salmonella Newport uh, in infants who had consumed powdered formula manufactured in the Sturgis plant. In what could be seen as a provocative move, China conducted military exercises in Taiwanese airspace, This just after 18 Chinese warplanes started the provocation last Friday. The Chinese army sent aircraft into Taiwan's air defense zone over the weekend to test and improve their combat capability. Beijing said Taiwan had scrambled aircraft and readied missile defenses when 18 Chinese jets violated its air defense identification zone on Friday. The People's Liberation Army maneuvers were repeated on Saturday and Sunday. Japan reported last week that eight Chinese naval vessels, including An aircraft carrier passed between its islands in the Okinawa chain near Taiwan. The New York Post reports that tensions between the two countries have escalated in the weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, with Taipei fearing Beijing may try to pull off a similar attack. Senator Marco Rubio last week introduced a bill that would fast-track arms transfers, increase training and strengthen relations between the U.S. and Taiwanese militaries, 
Taiwan Foreign Minister Joseph Wu told reporters Monday that China poses a threat to the island nation, but insisted that we have the determination to defend our country. Well, after 60 million abortions, Yelp's CEO claims that Roe saved countless lives. Maybe what he meant was you can't count them because, well, there aren't any. The CEO said beyond saving countless lives, Roe versus Wade was a singular moment that helped pave the way for women to pursue educational and professional opportunities at greater numbers over the past 50 years at the cost of countless lives. Well, exposing Big Brother in the workplace, The Economist reported that in a study by the European Commission, they found that the global demand for employee spying software more than doubled between April of 2019 and April of 2020. Within weeks of lockdowns starting in Uh, March of uh, 2020, search queries for monitoring tools rose more than 18-fold. Surveillance software makers reported huge increases in sales. At uh, Time Doctor, which records videos of users, screens, or periodically snaps photos to ensure they are at their computer, sales suddenly um, trebled in April of 2020 compared to the previous year. Well, the cause of sudden infant death syndrome has long been a mystery to medical experts. Well, that mystery may have been solved by a doctor in sleep medicine from Australia. Dr. Carmel uh, Harrington has been studying SIDS since the death of her own two-year-old son to the syndrome over 30 years ago. What Harrington's research team has discovered is the presence of a biochemical marker that may have a direct impact on SIDS. The biochemical marker researchers have identified as BCHE, which plays an important role in the brain's arousal pathways. Uh, Researchers found that infants who died of SIDS had significantly reduced levels of BCHE. Babies have a very powerful mechanism to let us know when they are not happy. Uh, She explained that usually if a baby is confronted with a life-threatening situation, such as difficulty breathing during sleep because they are on uh, their tummies, they will arouse and cry out. What uh, the research shows is that some babies don't have the same robust arousal response. Now that uh, we know that BCHE is involved, we can begin to change the outcome of these babies and make SIDS a thing of the past. Let's hope that will be the case. President Biden signed the Ukraine Lend-Lease Act into law, expediting military aid. Meanwhile, the the Hill leaders uh, struck a deal on a $40 billion Um, gift to Ukraine as well. A judge has blocked purported evidence of Clinton ties to a plot linking Trump to Russia and COVID relief fraud led to billions of taxpayer funded PPP loans lost. U.S. diplomats returned to the embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, and a poll finds overturning Roe versus Wade won't have big midterm election impact. Well, bringing down the House, pro-abortion activists turned the table on Nancy Pelosi after she urged them to mobilize. The pro-choice protesters accused Pelosi of being complicit in the reversal of Roe versus Wade, mentioning the Democrats' supermajority under Obama. Giving no room for dissent, doctors slammed the president's officials' gender-affirming care claims, saying that many are terrified to speak. Residents from Biden's home state are sounding off uh, on skyrocketing gas prices as inflation continues to surge. And activists targeted all six GOP-appointed SCOTUS uh, Supreme Court justices' homes for what they're calling walk-by Wednesday. In a tight three-way race, uh, Dr. Oz and Kathy Barnett gained significant ground as support for David McCormick dips in Pennsylvania in the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate. Calling protesters to keep it peaceful, the White House press secretary 
a double down on the president's stance regarding abortion protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. Federal hikes, uh, the, the feds rather, hiked the interest rates again, as promised. The Federal Reserve announced it is raising its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point and not by the more aggressive three quarters of a percentage point some had feared. The rate increase is aimed at stopping rising inflation and its views as a positive indication that the Fed does not see a recession as inevitable. Still, the hefty hike is the highest since 2000. Fed Chairman Jerome Transitory Powell explained, I think ex- um, expectations are that we'll start to see inflation, you know, flattening out, end quote. Well, the markets responded positively to the development, experiencing their biggest gain since 2020. Sony refuses to bow to Beijing's censors. The Chinese Communist government's censors recently demanded that Sony remove the Statue of Liberty from Spider-Man. No way home prior to the release in China. Lady Liberty is prominently featured during the third act of the film. Sony, however, rejected China's initial demands, which prompted the communist censors to come back with a minimization compromise. If Sony could cut a few of the more patriotic shots of Tom Holland standing atop the crown, dull the lighting so that Lady Liberty's visage wasn't so front and center. However, Sony again rebuffed Beijing's compromise offer, putting the possibility for the film release in China in jeopardy. But this is not the first time Japanese-owned entertainment company has refused to bow to Beijing's censors. Sony refused to remove a portrayal of uh, Bruce Lee from the uh, another movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which led to China banning the movie. It will be interesting to see if the uh, Chinese communists uh, own, for, um, own hunger for a piece of the box office profits will cause them to relent, given the fact that the previous two Holland Spider-Man movies pulled $116 million and $200 million in China. So we'll see what happens next. Intensifying the pain at the pump, the administration has canceled a massive oil and gas lease sale with gas prices soaring to record highs. And a close Russian neighbor has taken a major step toward joining NATO. Unsurprisingly, Putin responded with an ominous statement. Well, Finland president and prime minister are urging the country to apply for NATO membership without delay. Moscow has threatened to position nuclear weapons along western border with Finland, Sweden, if they join. Meanwhile, millions of dollars from uh, the president's massive COVID relief package went toward electric school buses. Kids didn't learn, but they can at least get to school on an electric bus. We've got news and traffic coming up here in just a moment. Uh, And then in the second hour, we'll hear from Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology and the Christian Life. All of that and more in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. But first, news and traffic. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Tony Renke will be my guest. We'll also uh, remind those of you who've joined us this second hour, what Multnomah County is recommending with regard to masks and a surge of a different form of COVID-19. Well, there's been a 35% increase in the number of police shootings uh, 
Um, we've, uh, we're five months into 2022, and the number of police officers who have been shot in the line of duty so far is 123, which represents a 35% increase over this time last year. Of those officers who were shot, 19 have died. If the trend holds, this year would end up worse than 2021, when 346 officers were shot and 63 killed. Numbers like this haven't been seen since the 1990s. Data shows that prior to 2020, the number of officers attacked and shot had been steadily declining. But over the past two years, the trend has dramatically reversed. Musk would lift the Twitter ban on former President Donald Trump, who's already said he has no plans to return to Twitter. My guess is it'll be too tempting for him. But uh, on Tuesday, the prospective new owner of Twitter said that he'd lift the social media platform's ban on the former president. In a BLM backfire, Black Lives Matter has left black Americans worse off than before. According to some experts, the Black Lives Matter movement started a massive wave of Americans uniting to call for defunding police and eradicating white supremacy to make positive changes for black Americans. But experts reflecting on the movement's scoreboard in 2022 say black America hasn't benefited. I would argue that, on balance, those communities are worse off because by BLM overemphasizing the role of police, they've changed police behavior for the worse, the Manhattan Institute's Jason Riley says in a phone interview. In other words, police do become more cautious. They're less likely to get out of their cars and engage with people in the community. And to the extent that police are less proactive, the criminals have the run of the place. Riley noted that police brutality still exists, bad cops exist, and he has no problem with raising awareness about police misconduct. But he argued that BLM is over-focused on police and doesn't take into account that 97, 98 percent of black homicides don't involve police at all. And the ongoing MAP battle, a Florida judge blocked Governor DeSantis redistricting MAP from taking effect before the midterm elections. And the DOG Inspector General's office says an employee leaked the Supreme Court draft report to the media, didn't actually leak it, just gave it to them, then resigned during the probe. In another uh, Manchin meltdown, leftists lost it over Joe Manchin's thwarting of the uh, failed abortion bill that did not pass yesterday saying it or I should say the vote to move it forward didn't uh, wasn't successful saying it's all part of the plan. The president's economic advisor claims inflation is part of the president's effective strategy against the pandemic. So I guess we have to have one or the other. An out of control brush fire torched million dollar mansions in Southern California and forced residents to evacuate their homes. And in a hands made fail, a handmaid's fail, protesters say Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the mom of five biological kids, doesn't know about full-term pregnancy. Somehow she had the five children without having any knowledge of what happened. Food prices are up 10.8%. Breitbart reports that food prices rose 9.4% compared with a year earlier. Data from the Department of Labor showed on Wednesday that's the fastest rate of inflation for food since 1981. Grocery store prices were up by even more, 10.8%. Eating out is not really a better option. Fast food prices are up 7%, and full-service restaurant prices are up 87%. Even vending machines' prices are up 7.1%. The Consumer Price Index shows inflation at 8.3%, approaching a 40-year high. And American drug overdoses have reached an all-time high. The Wall Street Journal reports that more than 107,000 Americans... 107,000 people in the U.S. died from drug overdoses last year. 
A preliminary Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data released Wednesday showed roughly a 15 percent increase from 2020. The proliferation of the potent synthetic opioid fentanyl has been compounded by the destabilizing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on users and people in recovery, according to health authorities and treatment providers. The U.S. has recorded more than one million overdose deaths since 2000, and more than half of those came in the past seven years. Four Russian governors resigned after a new wave of sanctions. Uh, These regional governors resigned on Tuesday as the country braces for the impact of economic sanctions. The heads of the Tomsk, Saratov, Kirov, and Mariel regions announced their immediate departures from office, while the head of another region said that he would not run for another term. Elections are scheduled to take place in all five regions in September. Though Russian regional uh, governors are elected, they are politically subordinate to the Kremlin. The Russian economy is set to contract by 8.8 percent this year, the, the economy ministry has said. The Washington Examiner reports that sanctions against Russia have continued to squeeze the country. Members of the G7 announced new sanctions on Sunday that would limit Moscow's ability to export goods, spread propaganda and access the oil and gas industry. And while Russian President Vladimir Putin claims that Russia can withstand the West's sanctions, other experts believe the effects of the war could have immense impact inside Russia as well as outside. An appellate court struck down a California gun ban. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down a California law passed last year that banned the sale of semi-automatic firearms to anyone under the age of 21. America would not exist without the heroism of the young adult who fought and died in our Revolutionary War, the judge wrote. In the majority opinion, today we reaffirm that our Constitution still protects the right that enables their sacrifice, the right of young adults to keep and bear arms. Ohio is seeking a ban on big tech censorship. Republicans in Ohio State House Civil Justice Committee recently approved a bill that aims to prevent social media platforms from censoring speech based upon a user's viewpoint. Republican Scott Wiggum, one of the biggest uh, one of the bill's sponsors, explains by preventing big tech companies from continuing to engage in viewpoint discrimination. We hope to protect the free exchange of ideas and information in Ohio. Yes, safe smoking kits do include free crack pipes. Crack pipes are distributed in safe smoking kits, as they're called, up and down the East Coast, raising questions about the administration's assertion that its multi-million dollar dollar harm reduction grant program wouldn't funnel taxpayer dollars to drug paraphernalia. That's what we were told. The findings are the result of the Washington Free Beacons visits to five harm reduction organizations and calls to over two dozen others. In fact, every organization they visited facilitate facilities rather in Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., Baltimore and Richmond, Virginia, included crack pipes and kits. Your tax dollars at work. Meanwhile, Fisher Price groomers have released a drag queen set for preschoolers. Welcome to the brave new world. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Tony Ranke will be the guest. God, technology, and the Christian life. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, from smartphones to self-driving cars to space travel, new technologies can inspire us. But the breakneck pace of change can also frighten us. So how do Christians walk by faith 
through the innovations of Silicon Valley? And how does God relate to our most powerful innovators? Well, to build a biblical theology of technology, journalist and tech optimist Tony Ranke, he examines nine key texts from Scripture to show how the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. Ultimately, what we believe about God determines how we respond to human invention. And with the help of several theologians and inventors throughout history, he dispels 12 common myths in the church and offers 14 ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. Well, my guest is Tony Ranke. He is a journalist. He serves as senior teacher and host of the Ask Pastor John podcast for DesiringGod.org. He's the author of Lit, A Christian Guide to Reading Books, Competing Spectacles, and 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And that's one worth reading. The book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is published by Crossway. He joins us by phone. And uh, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, this is so fascinating. I think if you were to ask the man on the street what the Bible has to say about technology and innovation, we might scratch, he might scratch his head and wonder, <laughs> is there any reference at all? And yet, um, your book points out that yes, there is in scripture a guide for us, um, in the 21st century as we consider technology and how influential it has become and how we ought to uh, view that. You um, decided to write a theology of technology. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah, it's basically you know, for a century or so now, the church's theologians have told us that faith and technology really don't belong in the same conversation. Uh, you know, human innovation is Babel-like, it's worldly, it's wicked, it's tainted top to bottom, and it's only destructive, you know, at least that's the sense that a lot of us have gotten. And so whenever you speak of human tech, you know, leave God out of the conversation, and that's largely what Christians have done. And now we live in inside the you know the, the most technologically advanced uh, society the world has ever seen, and many Christians work inside major tech centers. And uh, now the church is not surprisingly mute. We don't know what to say now in this age. And uh, for myself and for a, a growing number of younger Christians, we're asking the question of, of maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe something got lost along the way. And so uh, what I'm trying to do is go back to the Bible, go back to Genesis to Revelation and, and get a better sense of, of what is God's relationship to human innovation and flourishing. Um, and there's a lot of cues that we find in the text. Well, I appreciate, um, you know, you're using the word um, innovation, because when we think about uh, technology in the 21st century, we're talking, we're thinking about electronics for the most part. We don't remember what came before it that were innovations in their time that may have raised questions at that time. Um, You offer some key texts from Scripture that gives us some insight, not only into what the Word says, but God's thinking and heart with regard to man's innovation. I think we begin probably at the Tower of Babel and sometimes think, well, that innovation kind of tells us all we need to know about future innovations in our time and back then. Is that sufficient? Well, no, it's definitely not. And uh, we have to go back before that to like page two or three of our Bibles into Genesis chapter four. And we need to trace out Cain's lineage. Why did God protect Cain's life when he is so worthy of being executed for the murder of his brother? Uh, and in the text, you have to be patient with the text and let it flow out of, uh, of, of what it says, because what we find out is that God is going to preserve Cain's life because Cain's great-great-grandchildren are going to initiate three massive industries, the industry of cattle breeding, what we may think of today as rudimentary genetics uh, and professional music, 
and metallurgy, the making of metal tools and weapons, all made possible by God's protective mercies over Cain's lineage. Cain is like the, the non-believer in the early part of the Bible. He's the, he's the rebel. He's the sinner. He's the, he's the non, non-Jewish. He's just not, he has no faith. I mean, he does not trust in God. He's a rebel. And God chooses this man uh, to bring about the first three major industries in world history. And that's before the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel comes along, and humans use technology. Big bricks are a new technology. It's something that man discovered, man invented, and man used that to try to idolize himself, try to um, glorify humanity in building a tower in a city. And that was sinful. That was wrong. That was against God's word. And so God breaks into that story. He hacks the whole thing so that we don't only have one city, but that we have tens of thousands of cities now. And so that's, uh, that's one way that he breaks in, but it keeps going on from there. I mean, it goes on to, you know, David and Goliath are two, two guys that go toe to toe. They're two technologists. Uh, Goliath, of course, has his own technology and David chooses a sling, which is another technology. It's a, it's a way to amplify human power. He's going to amplify the power of his arm into a sling and he's going to basically play the role of a sniper. Uh, he be, he, he's the superior technologist in a one-on-one type of a battle. And so, I mean, those are just the early chapters of the Bible. And then you get into Job and the Psalms and Isaiah and uh, then the New Testament and Revelation 18 and Babylon. I mean, the the story is so expansive on what we can learn about God's relationship to human innovation. It it truly is uh, unspeakable. Well, I appreciate that you you uh, force us to think differently about those innovations because they're primitive. We don't often credit them for yes. what they were at the time. And I love the, what you say about God determining how we um, No, That's not what I'm thinking. It's um, uh, the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. We don't think about yeah. God's hand at work in permitting and even in inspiring these innovations that we have all benefited by and benefit yeah. today. Yeah, and this is why I think in the last 100 years that was lost. But before that, it was it was in the uh, Reformed theologians of the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, even up to Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, who uh, developed this idea of common grace. Uh, a guy like John Calvin went so far as to say the same Holy Spirit that regenerates believers is the same Holy Spirit bringing about human innovation for human flourishing. Now, that to us, that will strike us as crazy talk uh, to speak in that kind of a strong language. But that's how a guy, a reformer like John Calvin was already talking about uh, common grace uh, back in his age. And Abraham Kuyper develops that out. But then by the time you get into World War One and World War Two, that common grace language really recedes in the background. And the church really struggles to talk about common grace, especially when we have these new powers of destruction. Right. So we, once you get into the world wars, now when you talk about human, human innovation, we're talking about being able to kill at scale. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes a more complex conversation when you have a nuclear bomb. Um, and so I can see why the conversation kind of fell off the table. But it, the, that, that conversation over common grace is in Scripture and it should still be in the church today. You describe yourself as a tech optimist. Uh, what are some of the myths about technology that we as believers often embrace? Well, I mean, the, the myth that stands out to me is the one that uh, human innovation is somehow an inorganic sort of imposition that we've pressed on to creation. It's sort of like we, we sort of force creation to give us an iPhone or we force creation to give us nuclear power or we force creation to give us social media or we force creation to give us 
um, gasoline or we, you know, we for, we somehow bring this will of ours into creation and sort of invent things out of, out of nothing, out of scratch. And that's just not how it works. And what I showed throughout the book is that God has actually put in place nine different limiters on what we can invent. And in fact, we can do very few things <laughs> for a, for a finite mind like us. It seems like it's infinite. It seems like we can do anything we want, but to an infinite God, what we can actually do with his creation is heavily limited. It's highly channeled. Um, ask anyone who's tried to start a, a startup in Silicon Valley or someone who owns a, uh, a patent of how, how hard it is to actually make money on a startup idea or a patent. Very few people can do it. Very few people actually make money off a startup, off of a patent, because there are so many factors involved in limiting what we can actually produce and make. And that's one of the arguments that I make. I think there's nine limiters that we see in Scripture where we don't have this sort of unlimited palette to do whatever we want. It's highly constrained by God. Well, and I think that's part of the fear that we often have is that there is no restraint, that if given enough time and given the appropriate um, resources that we can do anything, and that is kind of a frightening thought to many. But as you point out, the scripture makes it clear that is not the case. The sovereignty of God doesn't somehow uh, stand apart from and aside from uh, technological advances. That's exactly right. And we see this in Isaiah 28 when God is telling us how farmers learn how to use tools, how to make tools, and then use those tools to actually bring about a crop and to bring about grain that will be turned into bread. Um, The tools are actually coded into the created orders. And we see that in Isaiah 28. So it's as if the creator is teaching the farmer how to farm. I mean, it's so direct. The language is so direct and God is teaching farmers all across the world how to do farming because they're in this um, dialogue with creation and what creation makes possible. And then you get into Isaiah 54. Now we're into the most scary tech, the most scary, uh, most powerful war tech in the world, in the hands of the people you don't want it in the hands of. Isaiah 54, God says, I am governing it. I'm there. I'm not gone. Don't buy into the godless dystopian vision of the world that the world may have. I'm there, even in the most powerful technologies being used for destructive purposes, God is there. And of course, you know, in Acts chapter 2, when we, when we see the apostles interpreting the, the crucifixion of Christ by nails, by this metallurgy, by this technology uh, that the Romans had, um, God is orchestrating even the crucifixion of his son by the use of this technology. And so we see even in the greatest expression of evil humanity has ever devised, and we see it in, uh, in, in Babel as well, which is another um, expression of, of uh, sinful man. God is there. He hasn't left us. He's not gone. He's not an absentee creator. Um, and he's going to turn those things for good, and he's going to sovereignly orchestrate them. And I think that's sort of a vision of technology that gets lost when we get mm-hmm. scared of mm-hmm. Elon Musk, scared of Silicon Valley, scared of what's next. Now, there are scary things, and we need to be aware. We don't need to be naive about how things uh, influence us, but we do need the confidence to know that God is there. He hasn't left us. Amen. We're talking uh, this afternoon with Tony Ranke. He is the author of a fascinating book that I would uh, recommend, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's really a fascinating uh, book that reminds us that technology just uh, doesn't just involve electricity in the 20th century. Uh, it really began at the very beginning. And as we see uh, God's sovereignty in play, it helps us to perhaps think differently about the technology that we live with in the 21st century, much of which can be rather troubling when it's misused. Now, how should Christians think about technological advancements, particularly when the innovators' motives are not consistent with uh, human flourishing? Yeah, that's a great question. There are, you know, worrisome innovations, and that's what we get, you know, when humans are able to invent and do so sensibly that we're going to create things that are destructive. We're going to, think, you know, create things that are self-destructive, and that's just a part of the reality of the life in the fallen uh, world that we, we live in. We seek to honor God in all ways, um, but that's not true of all people. And so there are a lot of worrisome technologies. When you, you think of like uh, artificial intelligence, I think is the big one that mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about. And we need to talk about things like that. And, you know, social media, um, isn't that destroying the social fabric of the democracy? I mean, that's a big question that the church needs to address. And isn't the metaverse, this new, this new privatized surveillance state, isn't that a problem? And isn't Amazon, you know, growing into a monopoly and killing the uh, market balance that we need for pricing? Aren't robots and AI going to take over all of our jobs? Will we survive in the workforce in the future if we don't have some sort of a computer interface with our brains? You know, there's so many scary things. Like the heart of a genetically modified pig was just recently yes. transplanted into a man. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> it's incredible, you know. And so the immediacy of hot heads these really drive the tech conversation in Christians. And these are big and important questions, all of them. But they also make it nearly impossible for us to build out a robust theology of technology because the immediacy of these concerning things just limit our minds to a very, you know, man-centric approach to the world. You know, look at this one scary tech. What do you think of it? And uh, very quickly you realize that just God is left outside the conversation. He's a non-factor. I think that's really what I'm going after with this book is the significance of being able to step back from the headlines and actually ask, okay, what's missing in our theology? What needs to be built back into how we think of the world in order for us to eventually address those immediate concerns in faith and with an informed understanding of, of what the Bible teaches us? And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. It's, I do sprinkle in some of the immediate questions, but more importantly, I study sort of the greatest technological revolution uh, the world has, has seen before ours, uh, roughly 1860 to 1913, mm-hmm. you know, between sort of the Civil War and World War One, um, And it's just incredible to see medical technology and vaccines and transportation and electronic media began and photography and video and airplanes took off. And uh, it's just incredible to look at that age. And so I think sometimes it's helpful to just get out of our age and to go back into mm-hmm. an earlier age and see what God gave us, uh, because we feel less threatened, I think, by those technologies, even though there were huge debates in the church. You know, the lightning rod is one that, you know, uh, is most interesting to me. In 1750, when Ben Franklin was, uh, you know, inventing the, the lightning rod, I and mean, he got a lot of pushback. You know, you're stealing God's thunder. You're taking away his means of chastening us. And uh, it was a really fascinating era to be a Christian because the fear was Ben Franklin's rod would just supercharge earthquakes in the future. And in fact, uh, not long after Ben Franklin started using the lightning rod, there was an earthquake in New England. And people said, aha, see, 
you just diverted God's God's wrath into the ground, and now you've supercharged the earthquakes of the future. And so those kind of debates in the church, we may look at those a little bit humorously now at, the, at what splits church, but what we have to realize is we're in the middle of like an unfolding tech tree. You know, technology is always developing. Things came before and things are going to come after, and we're in the middle. We're in like a research and development lab. It's the world that we live in, you know, and there's new technologies being made that have to be adopted and some that aren't going to help us flourish and some that will. And we're trying to figure that out. You know, how do you respond to a global pandemic? Is this vaccine the right one? Maybe not. Probably something much better is going to come in the future. Like, how do you do that? We're in the midst of this research and development, which is one of the things that I think a lot of Christians don't realize. I mean, we're not trying to pronounce final judgments on all these technologies we have today. We're seeing, okay, they're developing. uh, They can be gifts. They can be a curse, but they can be gifts as well. And we're trying to work them out in real time. And it's it's complicated, but it's it's never done apart from God's sovereign orchestration. Mm, which is the most important thing to remember in the midst of yeah. that whirlwind. You offer um, some common myths uh, and you dispel some common myths in the church with regard to technology. But you also offer, and I really appreciated this, ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. And I think we desperately uh, need that we we are overwhelmed by not only the present technology but where it's going and what's what lays ahead. Can you talk a little bit about the and you offer fourteen of them, but ethical convictions to help us live by faith in this age that can seem overwhelming? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to say. Um, yeah, I think the critiques the crit- the critiques of Christians uh, by atheists say you know Christians don't have anything to say in the tech age because the Bible doesn't talk about genetics, the Bible doesn't talk about artificial intelligence, the Bible doesn't talk about robots, and therefore the Bible is irrelevant for the tech age. And uh, so a lot of that section, which is the last chapter of the book, is pushback against that whole idea that somehow the Bible is irrelevant. Is relevant because what technology does is it simply raises old ethical dilemmas, like what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to flourish as a human? What does it mean to have, uh, to not exploit the poor? What does it mean to kill an enemy in war? What does it mean to care for those who are humans at conception? What does it mean to be a woman and not a man? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be a member in a local church? What about personal privacy and religious freedoms? All of those things are sort of perennial issues that come up over and over and over as the technologies change over time. They're perennial questions, and the Bible addresses all of those. And so basically in those 14, to sort of speak broadly about those Mm -hmm. 14 points, is what I'm trying to show is the Bible is relevant, super relevant for the digital age in, in these 14 ways. And it's really an extension of what I was doing in 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, my earlier book on specifically on digital media, is just showing like all the dilemmas that we we face when it comes to you know Instagram and spending too much time on TikTok or Snapchat, whatever the medium is, is just raising like com- Jesus's commands back into the forefront of our minds. Like, uh, what does it mean to flourish? It means listening to the Savior, listening to what He says about distractions, listening to Him about what it means to love our neighbor, love our God. Like these questions just come up over and over again. Um, they're just cyclical in kind of an ecclesiastical kind of a way, um, and they're they're so relevant because they're, they're just the perennial questions. Yeah, yeah. You write in the book that a total tech disengagement is coming. What do you mean by that? It's it's hard to imagine that possibility, yeah. but what do you mean by that? <laughs> 
what I found when I was writing this book, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is that as I was trying to understand uh, a biblical theology of technology, meaning taking the theme of, of technology and going Genesis to Revelation canonically through the whole Bible, mm-hmm. what I realized at some point in my research was I was just basically doing a biblical theology of the city. That's all I was doing. And so in the, in the biblical storyline, technology and the city are just one storyline woven together. And so what that means is when you get to the end of, of the Bible, when you get to um, uh, Babylon, uh, the city, the biggest, most technologically advanced, most opulent city the world has ever seen in um, Revelation chapter 18, what that means is this apex of technology, this apex of wealth, this apex of comfort is going to be interrupted and judged by God in the end. We know that from, from his word. Babel is the city of all cities. It's the, it's the composite of all our cities. And it, what we read in that text is that God calls his people out of the city before he judges it. And the angels are actually the ones who call God's people out of Babylon before he judges it. And so you can think about this, you know, through rapture language, if that's kind of the, uh, the language that you'd use, or just the tech disengagement, which is kind of how I would talk about it. But there comes a point in time when God's church is going to be called out of the city. We're going to walk away from whatever gadgets we have at that time, whatever houses we have at that time, whatever vehicles we have at that time. We're going we're gonna to step out of the city, and God is going to come down and judge, finally, uh, man's cities, man's epicenter of rebellion. And he's going to put in their place something better, a city that he's designed and he has built and he is going to place in its place. And that's the, the new creation to come that we long for and, and can't wait for. But what that means is that we now have a vision for the technologies in our life, like our computers, our TVs, our smartphones, our microphones, our telephones, our microwaves, our dishwashers, um, the gasoline we burn in our cars that are so techn- technologically advanced, mm-hmm. like all of the things that we have, we will eventually um, turn away from. And that, I think, when we look at, at Revelation 18, it's a, it's a good reminder that one day we are going to be called out of the city, called away from our technologies. And uh, in, in some sense, this is why I admire the Amish and the Mennonites, because they've already done that in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. It, I think they've done that a little bit too early, but, <laughs> but I do admire that they did it, you know, and that they've stepped out of the city and they've stepped out of the technological uh, revolution that we're experiencing. Now, I don't think we have to do it yet, but at some point we will. And um, the angels will make that clear. God will make that clear when that transition is, is to come. But even now, it helps us understand the place of our gadgets and our devices. Yes, we use them to serve God. It's a stewardship. Everything we've been given is a stewardship to, to honor God, to glorify him, and to serve our neighbor. Uh, but there will be a complete tech disengagement one day when we walk out of our cities. Mm. Well, the book is titled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's absolutely fascinating. I've never thought about uh, technology and innovation in quite the same way, and certainly not in the context of Scripture. And I would encourage anyone who looks at our age with wonder and <laughs> scratches their head to read the book yeah. because it does help us to recognize the Scriptures have lots to say about the time we're in and how we're connected with the, the history of mankind and innovation. Uh, I want to commend you for the book, and thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it here today. It's been my honor, Georgine. Thank you. Oh, by the way, where can our listeners uh, yeah. best find your book? 
Um, it's uh, it's on Amazon.com, of course, and uh, it can also be purchased for 50% off at Westminster Books Online. Excellent. Westminster Books Online. Yep. Tony Ranke, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. My joy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, really a fascinating uh, book. And to see how scripture is woven throughout human innovation, those things that we have benefited by and those things we regret and fear, uh, all addressed in God, Theology, and the Christian Life, published by Crossway, by the way, if you'd like to pick that up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I wanted to uh, be in the program in the same way that I began the program, announcing that Multnomah County health officials are asking people to wear masks indoors until a new coronavirus case count and hospitalizations start to fall. This isn't a mandate, we're being told, but they're asking everyone to put their masks back on for a few weeks as they go to school, work and other indoor events. That's a quote from health officer Dr. Jennifer Vines. In a statement, adding that the county strongly recommends that people wear masks in schools, end quote. Well, county officials, they haven't set a case or hospitalization threshold for when they would consider mandating masks, actually mandating them rather than suggesting, a spokesperson for the health department said, nor have they set a threshold for lifting the recommendation. The county, and again, we're referring to Multnomah County, has been averaging about 350 new cases a day. That's up from 100 a day. In early April, well, the governor ended the uh, statewide mask mandate in March after cases fell from the record highs of the Omicron wave. The current COVID-19 bump is expected to peak in about a month and what when hospitalizations would uh, max out around 320 occupied beds, according to an Oregon Health Sciences University forecast. And that's far above previous highs that approach 1200 people hospitalized. Well, by recommending that everyone wear a mask indoors, the county is uh, stepping ahead of federal recommendations at the current risk level in the county set by federal health officials. Based on case counts and hospitalizations, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that people at risk of severe disease rather should consider masking. Only at a high risk level does the agency recommend that everyone wear masks indoors. So Noma County is at odds with the uh, CDC So you have to decide. Clackamas and Washington counties have not recommended universal indoor masking, but are also in the medium risk category and have said the same or higher case rates over the last week as Multnomah County. So they're experiencing the same increase in numbers, but have not made the same recommendation. Washington County would likely recommend universal masking if its risk level climbs to high from medium where it currently stands. It's important for everyone to think about their own health, their own risk level and risk levels of those in their house and social circle and to act accordingly. That's according to an official from Washington County. Clackamas County isn't making a universal mask recommendation either because it's still in the medium risk category. And Multnomah County officials also suggested people who are in the high risk of severe COVID consider avoiding crowded uh, indoor settings for the next few weeks. And we'll continue to follow what recommendations they may or may not make in the coming days. Meanwhile, Wall Street's prolonged plunge is beginning to raise Americans' concerns about their retirement savings, potentially pushing some to delay retirement as their account balances dwindle. One headline read, my 401k is now a 301k. Americans are putting their retirement plans on hold as more than $7 trillion in value is wiped off the stock market 
this year. The S&P 500 has dropped 18% so far this year, losing $7 trillion in value. Prolonged sell-off is spurring concerns about 401k and IRA retirement holdings. And on Thursday, the S&P 500 was creeping toward confirming a bear market. So far this year, the benchmark S&P 500 has dropped, wiping away $7 trillion in the market value from the companies in the index. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down nearly 14%. Bonds, the traditional safe haven for those approaching retirement age, have also fared poorly with high inflation and rising interest rates, with Vanguard's total bond market index fund losing more than 9% since the start of the year. Well, since retirement savings like 401k and IRA accounts are typically invested in a mix of stocks and bonds, the resulting losses are worrying too many savers, says the 65-year-old behind the mic. My 401k is now a 301k, lamented one Twitter user. I just checked out my 401k for the first time in a while. Hope your day is going better, joked MLB analyst Ryan Spader. One podcaster, Lauren Good, tweeted, password manager apps should literally have... um, a uh, are you sure you want to log into your 401k pop up right about now for younger Americans who haven't lived through the market downturn double digit declines in their retirement savings may seem especially disturbing but they have time experts say those who have decades left before retirement shouldn't spend much time worrying about paper losses in their retirement accounts historically even severe market pullbacks of 20 to 40 percent only last about 14 months about 14 months And the S&P 500 rise uh, about three out of every four years, according to CNBC. For older Americans who are closer to retirement, the simultaneous pullback of uh, both stocks and bonds may cause for more concern and could uh, even prompt reassessment of retirement plans. Roughly 60 million Americans have 401k plans holding collective assets of about $7.3 trillion, according to the investment company Institute. The nation's total retirement savings, including IRAs and employer-sponsored plans, were estimated at somewhere around $37.2 trillion last month. But that will have to be adjusted given current concerns. Hey, we are out of time. I hope you'll plan to join us tomorrow. It will be a Friday, and we'll spend the first couple of segments looking at headline news, the second couple of segments looking at the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this month's or this week's Christian Outlook. I had the opportunity to host this uh, this week, and I think you'll enjoy the content. So that's coming up on tomorrow's Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.